0: Good morning. Good morning. Grace and peace be multiplied to each of you in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, truly it's good to be here with you. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Trevelle and I am a member here at Redeemer Fellowship. I have been for some time now, and uh, I serve in our hospitality, so you may see me greeting you at the door, or um, I serve with our children and journey kids and in surgery with our youth group for high school and middle school. And on occasions, the elders allow me to stand before you and serve you with the word, which is my task today. And so if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 2. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 2. And we're in the next section here, which begins at verse 37. So we'll take a look at that. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 37. While you're finding your way there, if you'll allow me to whisper a word of prayer over our time together, we'll read the text and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the mercy that you allow us to be here this morning to worship you. We've worshiped you in song. We've read the word. We've prayed the word. We've seen the word in communion. And now it's time for the proclaiming of your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us prepare our hearts to hear your word. If there's anyone here who does not know you and the forgiveness of their sins, that this word you would use to pierce their hearts as it does in this text. Father, we pray that we would be people that live a life of repentance, that clearly see our sin and submit to the glory of God in our lives. Pray that we are not just hearers of your words, deceiving ourselves, but that you would help us be doers of your word. And we pray that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal unto us the Son of God. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter number 2, beginning at verse 37. This is the word of the Lord, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, "Save yourselves from this crooked generation, so that So those who received His words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, This text is an important text for us to come to. I believe it comes to us with great urgency this morning, especially in light of all that is happening in our world, specifically this week. There's devastation and violence all over the world. We see that, and we come to this text, and this text poses a question for us. The most important question that anyone can ask in your life, and that is the question of how is a man to be saved? We all have one great problem. That's sin. We need to do something with that and so this text will help us see what to do with our sin. How can a man, how can a person be saved? By what act? By what method? Through what person? What is the operation? What is the channel of salvation? And we know that since the beginning of time there's always been saviors. There's always been someone who was going to uh, have an answer for our problems, to redeem man from their trials and their tribulations. There are endless and endless solutions that's been offered for this problem. But still the question goes on. How is a man to be saved? How is a man to come to the knowledge that he's both secure for both time and eternity? That there is a life of bliss, not only here, but, but there wherever there may be. Biblically, the question comes in many different forms as well. It says, how can I enter into the kingdom? How can I be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? These are all questions we see in scriptures over and over again. And now this passage is dealing with the wrap-up of Peter's sermon. And it's very important that as we look at this text and we see the response to Peter's preaching that, that we're going to be gaining some real principles for our own witness and for our own evangelism and for our own preaching. So if you will, let me paint the scene for us by way of review. So we've been studying the book of Acts and we've learned several things. First, we learn, we read the Gospel of John, that Jesus says that he promised to send the Holy Spirit to equip the church to finish what he didn't finish. And then on the day of Pentecost, at the very beginning of the first verse in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God came the Spirit of God then baptized all the disciples that were gathered there in Jerusalem into the body of Christ and indwelt them and filled them with the Spirit. And in the meantime, there was a sound, sound of a mighty rushing wind that gathered people all together in Jerusalem. And there were masses of people, they began to gather at the sound of the wind. But there wasn't really wind, it was just the sound. And as they came to the location where the sound was, here are these disciples. They're speaking the wonderful works of God in the native tongues of all those who had pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so the Spirit of God had done a great job with publicity. He had gotten the crowd there. He had done it by advertising with the sound of wind and then he also did it by a sign of the apostles speaking the word of God to all of them in their native tongue that they can understand. And so the spirit gathers the crowd. They see the sound of wind. They have the sign of them speaking the wonderful works of God. And so these people here, they, would, they heard this and they were astonished. They couldn't deny the phenomenon. What is this that we're seeing? What is this that we're hearing? And so Peter then begins to stand up to preach. And, and the spirit of God had done a great job for Peter to preach because they see all of these things that's happening and their hearts are prepared to hear what Peter has to say. As he begins to speak, they cling to every word that he says. And so Peter bounces right off of this living illustration that's provided for him. And first he he starts, and it's a beautiful illustration that God gives. He says that this is the beginning of messianic times in terms of fulfillment. In the Old Testament, the prophet Joel said that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And then so this is the beginning to see the prefillment of the ultimate fulfillment that which will come in the kingdom. They're seeing the beginning of the outpouring of the spirit of God. And in verse 17, it says that these are the last days. And we know, um, eschatologically, that the last days that we've lived in the last days for at least 2,000 years now. The last days is just a term that refers to the time between Jesus' first coming and, and his second coming. And the time between the two is what we call the last times, the last days. And so Peter begins to speak and he says, what you're seeing is the beginning of the end. And they would have known what he meant by last days and they would have known that this is a messianic reference. And so the Messiah has arrived, is what he says. The Savior had come, the Redeemer has come, the Deliverer was there. The anointed king had arrived. He says, these are the last days. So if these are the last days, there must be a Savior. There must be a Christ. So he moves immediately then into the theme of his sermon in verse 22 and he introduces the Savior as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this would have been a very startling thing for those who are hearing because they had just gotten through executing Jesus of Nazareth as a blasphemer. What a shock it would be for them to realize that the hope of their hearts, the person they've been waiting for for centuries has now been crucified by their own design. And this is what Peter convicts them of. This great sin, Peter wants to prove to them that Jesus is the Savior and he does this in a sermon by taking first the life of Christ in verse 22. And he says because Jesus lived and he did miracles and wonders and signs, that he was being accredited by God as the Savior. And then in verse 23, he takes the death of Christ and says, the death of Christ was no accident. Jesus was no victim. But rather, this was ordained by God, fulfilling the prophecy explicitly. And then he takes the resurrection of Christ in verses 24 through 32, and he says, Jesus is the Savior because of his resurrection. And he shows how in the Old Testament David predicted that the Savior would be a resurrected individual. And Jesus had done just that, fulfilling David's prophecy. And so Jesus, he shows here clearly, Jesus is the Savior by his life, his death, and his resurrection. And then he goes on to show that Jesus is Savior by virtue of his ascension. In verses 33 to 35, he says that he is the Savior because he's exalted at the right hand of the Father. And they that stood before them proclaiming these things were eyewitnesses to them because they saw him go up. And then he concludes this theme in verse 36. Look at it, verse 36, Acts chapter 2. Listen to it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's proven Jesus to be the Christ, that he is the Savior. And now he really indicts them as the executioners of their own savior. And he doesn't pull any punches here. Peter doesn't play around. He goes right to the core of their problem. He says, here it is, the most blatant sin that a man commits is not lying, cheating, or committing adultery. The most blatant sin in the life of every sinner is rejecting Jesus Christ. And that's the cardinal sins that the Spirit of God convicts. We see that in John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. The scripture says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and concerning sin because you do not believe in me. Me being Jesus. So in other words, the the most dominant thing that a man must recognize is that he is a rebel against God's plan and against God's Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter shows them that he had... That they had executed their own Messiah. They executed their own Savior. So that's the scene. That's where we are as we approach our text this morning. And so here it is. I want to give a main idea, the overarching theme of the text this morning. So if you get nothing else out of the sermon, get this. This text is tailored to teach us that we need to repent of our sins, receive God's Spirit, and believe in God's Son. Repent of your sin. Receive God's spirit and believe in God's son. That's the overarching thing of this text. We'll walk through this text in three movements. This text will teach us three things that are necessary for salvation. Three things that are necessary for salvation. Number one, we'll see that we must hear the gospel with conviction. Conviction. We must hear the gospel with conviction. Number one, we'll see that in verse 37. And then number two, we must repent and obey see that in verse 38 repent and obey and then lastly we must respond to God's call see that verses 39 to 41 we must respond to God's call and that's how we walk through the text let's get to work number one we must hear the gospel with conviction the bible says that Peter is preaching this sermon here he's exhorting the people in verse 40 he says he's exhorting them with many words and so whenever you go into any kind of sales you're told that when you go to sell a product then Make sure that you don't just tell them about it and then leave. The whole idea is that you got to get them to sign on the dotted line. So that's what Peter does. He doesn't just preach the sermon and say, all right, you've heard it, you're dismissed. He doesn't just wrap up his sermon with verse 36. He presses on. He wants to have them sign on the dotted line. He wants to clinch the deal. Verse 37 says, look again, and now when they heard this, and they heard the sermon, this powerful sermon, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? What must we do? Oh, oh, how I like that question. That's a a good question. They are in the right spot. They are desperate. And that's where the Spirit of God wants to take every man, every woman, every child. In terms of conviction, he wants to take us to a place of absolute desperation. He must become desperate. Notice how it says they were cut to the heart. Now, in older English translations of the Bible, they use the word pricked or pierce. And I like that it's an interesting word in the original language because pricked or pierced is, this is the only place that we see this kind of language in the New Testament. It means to be pierced or to penetrate with a needle or a sharp instrument like a knife. It carries the idea of suddenness. It's like jamming a dagger into someone suddenly it's piercing and suddenly there's grief so in other words the idea that we're going here is that they were going about their lives very complacently going about in the traditions of Judaism like doing what they've always done what they've always knew and then Jesus comes along claims to be the Christ and they kill him and then they just continue going about their lives just like they all always have and then all of a sudden bam on the day of Pentecost. They're cut to the heart. Grief comes in as a result, and suddenly they're messed up. You may ask, why are they messed up? What what happens to them to get them to this point of desperation? Well, I think there are several things that happens, and if you will allow me to give a few observations to the text. I think, number one, that they have sorrow that the Christ, the Savior, had been put to death. That's a terrible thing. They've been waiting the Messiah for centuries. And finally, when he gets here, they put him to death through the hands of the Romans, through the hands of the Romans, and that's a terrible thing for them to realize. And I believe that cut them deeply. And they were convicted. And those who were convicted, they were convicted because the savior had come and they had executed him. But on top of that, secondly, I think they were cut to the heart because they had a deep sense of guilt that they themselves had done it. Not only had the savior been killed but They killed him. They actually had done it and you can put yourself in the text right here. Your sin is what killed Jesus. My sin is what killed Jesus. He died on the cross. I killed him. And certainly it would have been a terrible thing to think of the thought of the the Messiah has been lost because someone else done it but they did it. They have a horrible sense of guilt and And thirdly, I'd like to observe that this this announcement that Peter had, he says to them in no uncertain terms that there was multiple witnesses to prove this, that this same Jesus, whom you crucified, is now alive. And I believe they're afraid of his wrath. Peter says in Acts 2.35 that someday he's going to make his enemies their footstool. It's the picture of his heel on their necks, there's going to be judgment on the enemies of the Savior. And when they realized they had done this, they executed him themselves. They are heaped with guilt because of it. And then they are aware of the tremendous response that God has towards his enemies. We have killed the Savior. What worse sin in all of the universe could we have done? Nothing in their minds and so those who were really convicted were convicted that they had done the worst thing imaginable. And they feared his wrath and they were scared of his vengeance. He was alive again and he was going to make his enemies his footstool. They're scared. And Lastly, I'd like to observe that I think they're grieved to the heart because they couldn't undo what they have did. There's not a thing they could have done about it. It was done and they were cut. But they had the right questions. They made the right answer. Verse 37. They say, brothers, what shall we do? What can we do to avoid the wrath of God? To make right what has been wrong? What shall we do? They're desperate. They had nowhere to go. They had no one to turn to. They were stuck. What shall we do? And oh, that's a beautiful thing because It is just that kind of hopelessness that Jesus Christ can meet you. As long as a person thinks that he can do it on his own, he can never know and experience real salvation. As long as a person thinks he can do it through his own works or through his own thoughts or bring his own ideas to add to what he thinks salvation is, there's no way for him. Salvation is all of grace. He says... You must become desperate. What must I do? They have nowhere to turn. No answers. And it's when you get to that point, it's there where God intervenes with his saving grace. We see this happening a few times in the book of Acts. We see it happening to the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul's on the road to Damascus. The Bible says that in verse 1 of chapter 9 that he's breathing out threats and slaughtering Christians and on his way, the Lord... Knocks him off his beast, blinds him and speaks and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Then the very next verse says that Paul is trembling and astonished. I mean, can you imagine I'm riding along on a normal day. I'm knocked off my beast, blinded and a voice from heaven says, I am Jesus who you persecute. You know what his response is? You know what Paul says? He says, Lord, what would you have me to do? what do I do he was scared he was convicted he had fear in his heart or perhaps we can consider a a maybe even more graphic illustration of that of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16 the Bible says that Paul and Silas are in prison and they're praying and singing praises to God around about midnight and suddenly there comes a great earthquake and it shakes the foundations of the prisons and immediately the Bible says that all the doors of the prison was open and all of the bands were loosed. The prison's shaken, doors flipped open, everybody loosed. And so the keeper of the prison, the, the guard there, he knows that if any prisoner escapes, he has to pay for that with his life. The Bible says that he takes out his own sword. He wakes up from his sleep, takes out a sword to go and kill himself because he knows he has to die for this. And Paul walks up to him and says, do not harm yourself. We're all here. This guy is shocked. He's rocked to the core. What is going on? Bible says that he calls for a lamp. He goes out to make sure that Paul is telling the truth and they're all there. And he falls before Paul and Silas and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? God exercised fear. He allowed fear to bring this man to a trembling place. He exercised a measure of fear in the heart of Paul. And he exercises a measure of fear into the hearts of these Jews for what they've done in rebelling against their own savior. And they, they've come to a, a deep sense of regret and guilt and a sense of their own evil. And they fear the justice of God and his retribution for his Christ. And they have a desire to be saved from that judgment that brought them to this place. And they say, Peter, what shall we do? And this is the state... Where the soul is best prepared to receive the Savior. It's this state where you are ready to completely yield to Jesus Christ. When your guilt has been fully exposed. When you feel the pain of the Apostle's Word. When your conscience has been stung by the sense of your own sinfulness in crucifying Jesus. The Bible says they're convicted. And if conversion is to be genuine... It must be the offspring of conviction. Conviction is the key and the hand of the Spirit that opens the heart to salvation. And to everyone that is going to preach, to everyone that is going to witness, we need to do it with great conviction. Oftentimes we're prone to water down sin. We don't want to call it really what it is. We don't want to paint it as grotesque as the Bible paints it. There's a lot of people in our world that will admit, yeah, I I lie, I do bad things. But you're not a sinner because you sin. You're a sinner because you live in open rebellion against the holy God. And so they hear this message and they are cut to the heart. They're convicted. The spirit of God is taking the word of God and piercing their sinful hearts. This This is an act of mercy, by the way. Whenever you feel conviction of your sin, it is the mercy of God. When God gives you eyes to see your sin as God sees it and you see it as against him, that's mercy. He grants us spiritual sobriety. They were pierced to the heart for their sin that they had committed. And they realized that Jesus was pierced on the cross for them. Now, as we'll come to see in the book of Acts, not everyone will be grateful to have their sin exposed. This will not always be the response. In fact, these same apostles brought this same message to the high priest in chapter 5. Listen to it. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, so, so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we see, right, the same message. Same things we see in chapter 5 as we see in chapter 2. Now listen to their response in chapter 5, verse 33. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So in our text, chapter 2, this group is cut to the heart. Convicted, pierced, pricked in their hearts. But this group in chapter 5, they're hardened in their hearts. They wanted to put them to death. And so when you preach, preach with conviction. When you witness witness with conviction, and you may say, "How? How can I do this? How do we do conviction? Well, the great tool of conviction is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. The tool of conviction is illustrated for us graphically in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 listen to this Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 for the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of joints and of marrows discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of to whom we must give an account that's what the word does The word of God is the convicting agent in the hand of the spirit of God. So we don't need any kinds of convincing gimmicks or tricks. Let the word do the work. Give them the word. It's a piercing thing. So when you preach, if you preach, but when you witness, witness with great conviction. So that they have to come to this great response. What must I do? And we see what must be done. Number two, we must repent and obey. We must repent and obey. Look at Acts 2.38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. First thing that he says here is you must repent. What does it mean to repent? It's simple. It means to turn. It means to turn around and go in the other direction. It means a a complete 180-degree turn from where you were going to the absolute opposite direction. You turn from all that is in part of your life in terms of your sinfulness all the way around and you commit yourself totally to Jesus Christ and nothing short of that. It's total commitment. So Peter says, turn right around and go the other way. There's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Listen to this. The Bible says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The Bible tells us here in this text, in 2 Corinthians 7, that the world produces a certain kind of sorrow, but it's not godly sorrow. It's this kind of sorrow that you get because you got caught. Not because you did what you did. And so Peter says, I don't want you to just be sorry about what you did to Jesus. Yes, I want you to be sorry, but I also want you to turn from your old way and turn to him. So repentance is far more than just a fear of consequences. There's got to be a deeper conviction. False repentance only dreads consequences. True repentance dreads sin itself. Laying aside all punishment, true repentance hates sin because of what it is. Sin is an affront to God. And the mere fact that it is evil and God hates it is a significant enough reason why true repentant hearts will hate sin and forsake it. So Peter says, turn all the way around. there." is no salvation. Mark this, there is no salvation and conviction alone. Oftentimes, trembling is substituted for godly fear and the fear of hell for the fear of God. But that's only the beginning. There must be a turning to Christ. We turn from our sins to Christ. True repentance forsakes sin and comes in total submission and total commitment to Jesus Christ. And there is a sense of urgency here, Peter says. He says, repent. It's an immediate thing. Complete turning instantly. Salvation is not the question of education. Salvation is not a process. It's an act that happens within a moment. We see examples of this all throughout the book of Acts. There's, and the book of Acts talks about repentance in many places. In chapter 2, 8, 11, all the way through 20 and 26. But there's one text I want to point out to us for our time. And This is the one. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. It says that God commands all men everywhere to do what? Repent. All men everywhere Repent. There is no salvation apart from repentance. Now, can you just imagine for a second, and put yourself in the shoes of these Jewish people who are hearing this gospel message. They are locked in a a beautiful and glorious and wonderful tradition. They have a community with a uniqueness unlike any other community in the world. They have a, a bond of nationality that is glorious and they exalt that, they lift that up. They've been deepened in this nation recently because they have just executed Jesus as a blasphemer. And now Peter says to them, turn around and say about Jesus that who he is and what he's claimed to be is true. They're cut. Peter says, cut the cord of all of your past life and embrace Jesus as your savior. That would be quite the change for them. And Peter is saying in an instant, in a moment, kiss all that you've ever known goodbye and follow Jesus. Embrace him as Lord and be counted as dead by your entire nation. All the people that you care about will turn their back on you for accepting this. This message comes at a very high cost. But that's what repentance is. It's a total 180 degree turn from everything that you once knew. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away and behold, all things become new. Repentance is just what it is. It is a reversal of your verdict about who Jesus is. Turn from your sin to him. And repentance is an act of faith. We turn from our sins to God. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You don't have faith if you don't have repentance and you don't have repentance if you don't have faith and then Peter adds here he says you repent then he asks be baptized he says repent and be baptized now when Peter's done preaching this sermon they ask what must he do there's obviously a great reaction I mean the Bible says they're cut to the heart they're asking what shall we do And many of them may have believed this in their hearts and they accepted the fact that this is true and that Jesus is the Savior. But I'm sure that there's some kind of temptations in some of them to say, I believe it, but I'm not really going to speak about it. I'll just believe it within myself and I'll go about my life. And Peter says, there's no such thing as a secret disciple. If you mean it, I don't only want you to change your attitude, I want you to change your association." So notice he says in verse 38, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. So Peter makes it very clear because in Judaism, there's many kinds of washings. And so another baptism doesn't necessarily mean that it was connected with Jesus. So he says, I want you to be baptized in the name of Jesus, tying them in with him as their savior Peter says, this must be a public act of severing your ties with your old life and proclaiming your new identification in Jesus Christ. So He says, I want you to be baptized. And baptism is just a symbol, just a sign of your union with Christ. It just says that I am publicly identifying with Christ. It's a public expression. And we baptize people in the name of Jesus as a testimony to the world that they are desirous of uniting with Jesus totally. He says, let's make this a public display of your allegiance to Jesus because you once publicly aligned in your rebellion against him. Now I want you to publicly align with him in your declaration that you are with him. And that's what baptism is. It's an announcement of your allegiance to King Jesus. That the old you has died and there's a new you is alive because Jesus is alive. And I just want to be really clear that Peter here is giving a summary of what he wants them to do. Peter is in no way instructing them that if they get water baptized, that's how your sins are forgiven. That's going to become very clear throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Baptism accompanies accompanies salvation in the sense that it is an act of obedience to the Savior and it declares our allegiance to him, but it is not what saves you. It's not what gets your sins forgiven. And in fact, Peter himself will clarify this more in his own epistles. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21, Peter writes, he says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Uh Uh-oh, wait. He says, not as the removal of dirt from your body. He says, so not the act itself, not the washing, not the cleansing, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter clarifies even further. He says, getting dunked doesn't save you. It doesn't take your sins away. It's the turning to God for a clear conscience and asking him to forgive you that saves you so the scripture says that be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And so in studying of the word for in our text, for that word is translated, should be better translated as because of. So the text should read like this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus because of your forgiveness of sins. So in other words, you repent and then you're baptized because your sins have already been forgiven. It's a public sign of what has gone on on the inside. And repentance is what brings about the remission or the forgiveness of our sins. Baptism is just a, a visible sign. It's a symbol. And just really quickly as we move, a footnote on verse 38 about the forgiveness of our sins and the remission of our sins. Isn't it nice to know that when you repent, God forgives you? That when you come to Christ, he forgives you. Isn't it good news to know that there aren't any sins piling up against you right now but that you are free simply to just agree with God about your sin and know that they've already been forgiven? That's good news. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 says, uh, My little children, I write these things to you because you've been forgiven for his name's sake." Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, He forgives you of all of your trespasses. That's what he rose to do. He rose to forgive you. Jesus is alive. And what is he going to do with all of his power? The Bible says after he rose that all power in heaven and on earth is given unto me. And what does he want to do with that power? He wants to forgive you. That's what he shed his blood for. That's why he shed his blood. To pay our debt. So that your sins can be nailed to the cross. It is finished. Paid in full, no more debt. He says, that's yours, free, free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Turn from your sin and trust in him. And then if you notice at the end of verse 38, he says, he gets to the good part here. He says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is what the prophet Joel Said in the Old Testament that in the last days he's going to pour out a Spirit upon all flesh. That's good news. It's good news for them. It's good news for us. That God's Spirit is poured out on us. That his indwelling Spirit will live within us. The Comforter will come. He will lead us and guide us into all truth and righteousness. And so Peter says the way to experience the indwelling life of the Spirit. That is by repenting and coming and identifying with Christ. Now notice here. I love this. There's no preconditions to receiving the Spirit. What's the condition to receiving the Spirit? One word, repent. Repent and be forgiven. Be baptized and you will receive the Spirit as a result. Now, the Spirit of God doesn't come as a result of water baptism. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that we are all baptized by the same Spirit in the same body. That's what salvation is, but we receive the gift of the Spirit. And you may ask, what is the gift of the Spirit? And Joe did a great job with this a few weeks ago at the beginning of Acts chapter 2. The gift of the Spirit is the Spirit himself. That's the gift. That's good news. That you will be in due with power on how and the Spirit of God, that same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, will live within you. We must repent and obey. And as we move on thirdly, we must respond to God's call. We must respond to God's call. Notice in verse 39, as he carries on from this, he says, for the promise, that is the promise of the spirit uh, in response to your salvation, he says the promise is for you and for your children. I love that. This is very important because do you remember what happened right before the crucifixion? Matthew chapter 27, um, right before Jesus is given over, Pontius Pilate says he saw that he was gaining nothing There was about to be a riot starting. And so he took water, he washed his hands, and he says that I'm innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. And the Jews there, they said, his blood is on us and on our children. So they said, we'll take his blood. Not only will we take his blood, but it will be for us and our children. So for generations, his blood is on us. But Peter here says, he says, that same curse that you called upon yourself and on your children... Jesus became a curse for you. Jesus took that. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not only the Jews, but look again, the promise is for you and for your children and the promise is for all that are far off. And who do you think are far off? Gentiles. That's us. Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2 Mark this as a reference, I won't read it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 13 tells us that clearly, that by the blood of Christ, we who are once far off have now been brought near. Everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The promise is for you and your children and for those who are far off. That's us, the Gentiles. And look at this next clause. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. Notice that this is the sovereignty of God in salvation. God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. Don't run from that. Everyone whom the Lord calls to himself. Also, this same chapter gives us both sides of that divine paradox. God is sovereign in salvation. And then in verse 21, if you go back a little bit, it says, And it came to pass that whoever should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's human responsibility too. God saves. He calls them to himself. But you have a responsibility to call upon him for the salvation. So we have both sides of that. As we move on, verse 40. In many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Peter here is a guy standing in the middle of the road, waving you down, saying, stop. You're on a path to destruction. Stop, turn, go the other way. Be saved, repent of your sins, save yourselves. He says this in the passive imperative. He says, be saved from this crooked generation. Well, you can't save yourself. So how can you save yourself, Peter says. Be saved from this crooked and twisted generation. So what Peter's meaning here is in the sense that You must yield yourself to the salvation provided freely to you in Christ. That's how you save yourself. Yield yourself to the salvation that is freely provided through Jesus. We must respond to the call of God. Jesus of Nazareth is our Savior. And what must you do? Repent. Be baptized. Be willing to name the name of Jesus in front of whoever. Peter hits hard here. And I want us to get this principle here because I think this will help us with our own personal evangelism. Notice what Peter does. He doesn't shy away from sin and judgment. And so as you are witnessing to people, we must major on sin and judgment. We must give the whole truth, full repentance. Nobody builds a tower intelligently who doesn't first sit down and count the cost. So when you're witnessing and you're telling people about Jesus, let a man know exactly what he's doing when he comes to Jesus. It's a total reversal of everything you've ever known. An allegiance with Jesus despite everything else that you're told. Follow him fully. Now, watch the results. See the results. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I love this. This is so good. What happens when you boldly declare the gospel with conviction? What happens when you call people to repentance and faith and to live a life of obedience to our Lord? By the Spirit of God, they will receive the word and many will continue to be added to the church unto the coming of Jesus Christ. That's good news. And so as we go, I want to consider a couple of things. First, what's happening here on the day of Pentecost in our text is a reversal of something that happened long ago. There's a place called Babel. You remember? It's called the the Tower of Babel. People came together with one language, all in rebellion to God so that they can make their names great. And God dispersed them. And now, because of Jesus, people come together under one name, that's Jesus, where there's many languages that are spoken so that all can hear and we all come together to be saved. God is undoing what was done at Babel. So now, there's not just judgment that goes out from the throne, but there is a word of mercy that goes out and says, flee to Christ for salvation. And this is foreshadows the great day that day in glory when one day people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be before the throne of God praising him and we'll end with this this text in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 it says and after this I looked and behold a great multitude then No one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One day soon, soon and very soon, with one voice, We will all sing the praise of our Lord Jesus. That same Jesus that you crucified, that I crucified because of our sin, that same Jesus that shed his blood to welcome us unto himself, we will know him forevermore. That's good news. I long for that day. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the reality of the gospel, for the work of Christ on the cross that provides us salvation, and you calls us to repent and believe you, to repent of our sin, receive your spirit, and believe in your son. Help us to be people that continue to do this and to be witnesses of this great truth so that more and more can be added this day to the kingdom of God. Father, we pray that as the seed of the word has been watered and planted We pray that by your Spirit, you bring forth the increase in our lives. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.